ketamine, S-ketamine. They may not be fire from the gods, but they have left some burning questions that new research is starting to answer. Whether you prescribe those drugs or not, these new studies will help you guide your patients. Welcome to the Carlite Psychiatry Podcast, keeping psychiatry honest since 2003. I'm Chris Aiken, the Editor-in-Chief of the Carlite Psychiatry Report. And I'm Kelly Newsom, a psychiatric NP and a dedicated reader of every issue. Over the past 20 years, we've figured out that ketamine treats depression, but we still have a lot of unanswered questions about the drug. How long does it work? How does it compare to other treatments? And who responds best? While we don't have full answers to any of those questions yet, we do have new studies to share with you today that clarify the picture. But first, the basics. Ketamine's discovery grew out of an effort to create a safer version of fencyclidine, also known as PCP or angel dust. PCP was released as a dissociative anesthetic in 1956, but it soon fell out of favor because of its high risk of psychiatric side effects like violence and psychosis. Ketamine was a safer alternative and entered the U.S. market as a dissociative anesthetic for short-term surgical procedures in 1970. It was widely used in the Vietnam War, and many soldiers came home with ketamine use disorders. Ketamine also has analgesic properties and is used for refractory pain. Ketamine's antidepressant effects were discovered in 2000 and it stands out for both its rapid action, people feel better within a day, and large effect size, 1.5. To put that in perspective, the largest effect size for commonly used psych meds is 0.9 for Vyvanse. But we're going to present some data today that call that effect size into question. Ketamine also has acute anti-suicidal effects, and its intranasal enantioma S-ketamine is FDA-approved for rapid relief of suicidality in depression. But while ketamine is rapid-acting, we don't know how to keep its benefits up. So many patients remain on maintenance treatments with the doses spaced out to every one to four weeks, much like maintenance ECT. Like many medications, think citalopram and escitalopram, or modafinil and armodafinil, ketamine is a mixture of two enantiomers, S-ketamine and R-ketamine. The original ketamine is a mixture of those two, which is called racemic ketamine, indicating it's a mix. But that ketamine drug is long gone generic, so the only way that the industry could bring it to market was to copyright one of the enantiomers for depression. One of those, S-ketamine, was released as Spravato in 2019, and the other, R-ketamine, is still undergoing testing. Ketamine, the original, is traditionally given as an intravenous IV medication because it has low bioavailability, meaning that it's difficult to get it into the bloodstream. IV is the straightest route for medications like this. After that comes intranasal, which is how S-ketamine Spravato is delivered. The nasal capillaries soak it right up, much better than the gut lining. Both ketamine and S-ketamine are Schedule three controlled substances. S-ketamine Spravato can only be delivered 
under monitoring in a provider's office, in part to make sure the drug is not diverted, but also to monitor their blood pressure and mental state during treatment. To prescribe esketamine for depression, providers must register with a REMS program, which usually includes inspection of their office to make sure the drug is locked away properly. Ketamine and esketamine can cause hypertension dissociation. Use can escalate to abuse, and they can be used as date-rape drugs. They carry medical risks like irreversible bladder ulcers, a problem that so far has only occurred in people who regularly use doses beyond the antidepressant level. Let's pause for a preview of the CMA for this episode. Earn CMA through the link in the show notes. 1. In a 2023 study from the New England Journal of Medicine, ketamine outperformed ECT with greater efficacy in which population? A. Outpatients with treatment-resistant depression. B. Hospitalized patients with treatment-resistant depression. C. Patients with a mix of severe and psychotic depression. D. Patients with mild to moderate depression. Now for the six updates. We're going to present them as six questions because although the new studies fill in some of the gaps, we still have a long way to go and we want to keep these questions open. Question one. How does ketamine compare to other treatments for depression? Two recent studies compared ketamine directly to ECT, one that got a lot of press and another that is barely talked about. In the first, ECT came out slightly ahead in terms of efficacy, and in the second, ketamine took the prize. It's that second study that got most of the press, likely because its results challenged the conventional wisdom that holds up ECT as the gold standard, and also possibly because it was in the New England Journal of Medicine. So which of these studies is right? Is it ketamine that's more effective or ECT that's more effective in depression? Let's start with what the studies had in common. Both were large randomized trials, although the study that ended up favoring ketamine was about twice as large, 365 versus 186 patients. But here's what separates the two. It's the types of patients and the quality of the ECT that was delivered. The study that favored ECT enrolled hospitalized inpatients, while the one that favored ketamine was done in an outpatient setting. And its recruitment procedures in that outpatient setting probably favored ketamine as well. You see, patients were allowed to drop out of the study after they were randomized, after they found out what they were assigned to, ECT or ketamine. And get this, 31 dropped out after learning they were going to have ECT, compared to only four who dropped out when they got the ketamine card. There's no way to blind patients, of course, to the treatment. So it sounds like ketamine's expectancy bias in this population might have enhanced its benefits. 
The other difference between the studies is that the ketamine-friendly study excluded patients with psychotic depression, while the ECT-friendly study allowed them in. That is a big strike against ECT because ECT is the treatment of choice for psychotic depression. Up to 95% of patients with psychotic depression experience remission on ECT. That's remission, not response. And that figure is from a large study of 276 patients. Numbers like 95% remission rates are practically unheard of in psychiatry. Here's the bottom line. These two studies clarify where each treatment works best. Ketamine for non-psychotic outpatients with depression and ECT for hospitalized inpatients and for people with psychotic depression. The next study was recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it compared not ketamine, but esketamine, Spravato, to quetiapine in 676 patients with treatment-resistant depression. It was sponsored by Janssen, the manufacturer of esketamine. Both drugs were used as augmentation of SNRIs or SSRIs, and in the end, esketamine was the clear winner, if only by a small margin. Specifically, those on esketamine were one and a half times more likely to experience remission than quintiapine, 27% versus 18%. Now, in some ways, this isn't surprising, as esketamine has already proven its benefits in the kind of treatment-resistant depression studied here, the real kind where they had to fail two or more antidepressant trials while quetiapine has mainly shown its benefits in patients who failed just one antidepressant. But we were a little surprised. Quetiapine has unique benefits in anxiety and sleep that could have swayed the data in its direction here. But alas, it did not. Also, as we'll soon see, this trial involved esketamine, which is likely not as effective as ketamine. The bottom line, esketamine is more effective than quetiapine in treatment-resistant depression not quite by a factor of two to one, but one and a half to one. And while S-ketamine leaves many patients in the undesirable position of requiring ongoing maintenance therapy, we have to concede that quetiapine is not much better in the long-term risk department. As professionals, we may shy away from long-term S-ketamine because it is a controlled substance. But for patients, the diabetes, weight gain, tardive dyskinesia may be more of a deal breaker. Our second question, is ketamine really all that effective? Earlier, we quoted a recent meta-analysis that registered an ultra-high effect size for intravenous ketamine, 1.5. That was across 79 different trials. This study is not alone in finding a big hit for ketamine. It's just the latest in a string of meta-analyses that arrived at similar conclusions. So to get a sense of that 1.5, by comparison, SSRIs have an effect size around 0.3 to 0.4 in depression, and stimulants like Vyvanse ring in at 0.8 to 0.9 in ADHD. Now, effect size is a measure of the difference between the placebo response and the medication response. And there is a problem in comparing effect sizes across different trials. Remember, ketamine studies are smaller 
and smaller trials tend to yield bigger effects. More critically, ketamine is a dissociative anesthetic. It has immediate, profound psychological effects. Don't you think that people should be able to guess whether they got ketamine or a saline drip? And if they did guess correctly, wouldn't that blow the whole placebo cover? That possibility was tested out in two new studies. The first one looked at all the controlled ketamine trials and divided them into two groups, those that used a saline drip as the placebo and those that used an IV benzodiazepine, midazolam, as the placebo. They used that one in an effort to better disguise ketamine's fingerprint. When compared to a saline drip, ketamine's benefits are loud and clear, with a large effect size of 1.7. But when it's compared to midazolam, that caused the effect to shrink by more than 50% down to 0.7, which is in the medium range and closer to the effect for the average psychiatric treatment, which is 0.5, where most psych treatments fall including psychotherapy. Now, that analysis to me is a pretty harsh takedown for ketamine, and perhaps it's too harsh. I mean, after all, other medications cause side effects that might clue study participants into whether they received a sugar pill or not. Think of the sedation on quetiapine or the high energy on modafinil. And that is where this next study comes in. It tried to blind participants to the placebo in a most dramatic and unusual way. Last month, researchers at Stanford published a small randomized controlled trial of IV ketamine versus saline placebo in depression. To make sure that no one could tell which treatment they received, they only enrolled depressed patients who happened to be undergoing surgery and gave either the ketamine or saline while the patient was unconscious from anesthesia. The blind worked. When they woke up, they correctly guessed which infusion they received at a rate that was, well, worse than chance. And with this blinding intact, ketamine worked no better than placebo. But after that, the trial's results get confusing, raising more questions than it ultimately answers. Even though there was no difference between the groups, both groups had significant improvements after the surgery, of the type we normally see in ketamine trials, dramatic responses that last a few days and then sink back into depression. Our first thought was, oh, they must have all thought they received ketamine and that jolted them into recovery. But no, the authors reanalyzed the data, this time dividing the patients into those who thought they received ketamine and those who thought they received placebo, and there was no difference between the groups. Well, our next thought was, having that surgery must have jolted them out of depression, overriding any benefit from the medication. But the authors cite studies showing the opposite. If anything, people tend to get more depressed after surgery, whether from the pain, discomfort, and ordeal of it all, or the rise in inflammation that occurs when the body is sliced open. Which leaves us with, we don't know why this study turned out the way that it did but it could all be the roll of the dice. It was a very small study, but it does suggest that patients need to be conscious to experience the benefits of ketamine, adding some weight to the debate over whether ketamine's benefits are purely biological 
the type that could be conferred by delivering the med during surgery, or psychological, the type that evolves from new insights obtained through a transcendent psychedelic experience. The bottom line. In this day and age, ketamine is the new panacea, much like SSRIs were in the 1990s. I mean, not many psych meds make it to the cover of Time magazine, but this one did. And with that distinction comes an expectancy effect that cannot be ignored. All trials of ketamine and psychedelics need to assess whether the patients could accurately guess the blind. In fact, let's make that the standard for trials of all meds. It's a simple question. Just ask. And now for the study of the day. Use of rapid fentanyl test strips among young adults who use drugs by Maxwell Krieger and colleagues. This is an older study from 2018, but last week it led to a new FDA clearance, the first over-the-counter fentanyl urine test. No, this isn't a test so that parents can check if the child is taking fentanyl. This is a harm reduction approach for people with opioid use disorder that will help them figure out if their supply is getting laced with a high-potency, high-lethality fentanyl. Since it's a urine stick test, it will tell them after the fact. But the harm reduction idea here is that something is better than nothing, and that is what this 2018 study showed. The researchers gave a similar urine test to 93 young adults in Rhode Island who used heroin, cocaine, or illicitly obtained prescription pills. Around half of them found out that their supply was laced with fentanyl back in 2018. And the reality check led to significant changes towards safer drug use. 77% said that they would use the test strips again. And now, thanks to the FDA, they can. Join us next week for the final three updates, where you'll learn which version works better, ketamine or esketamine how to sustain the benefits, and whether psychotherapy assistance is necessary. We're excited to announce a new Carlet book, the fourth edition of Psychiatry Practice Boosters by Zachary Davis and Jesse Kosky. Inside are 63 of the most clinically relevant studies in psychiatry from the last three years. So if you enjoyed the last edition, You'll find all new studies in this one. Your support helps us stay free of industry influence and bring you the unbiased information you can trust. 